set down your sleepy water and your Mr. Whistle and crack it cold. It's time to have a real talk about pediatric dentistry. This is Bruise and Tiny Teeth. Hey guys, Dr. Casey Getz checking in with you. Got a great episode this week. We are doing a podcast swap. I was fortunate enough to be on the Dental Marketer podcast with Michael Arias. He's a really cool guy and kind of a marketing whiz, and that's what his podcast focuses on. So we had a really good conversation on the startup process, how to increase new patient flow, marketing strategies, social media, um, really good podcast that kind of dives into startup topics. And specifically, I seem to talk a lot and answer a lot of questions that he had on my startup process and how I kind of got going. So really cool episode. We cover a lot of topics and uh, anybody that's, you know, thinking about becoming a small business owner or uh, maybe doing a startup, this is a really good um, startup heavy practice management style podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. So if uh, anybody's interested, I posted the links for Michael in the podcast description to his website, sort of his marketing consulting that he does for for dentists and specialists and startups, and then also the link to his podcast. So without further ado, here is Michael Arias with the Dental Marketer Podcast. Hey, welcome to the Dental Marketer Podcast. This is episode 341. And in this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Casey Getz. I like to have really personalized Facebook posts, good photos, some Facebook lives, some videos, tiny tooth tips, pictures of kids giving me fist bumps, videos of making balloon animals, just lots of cute things. And I, I get a huge, you know, because my demographic is moms age 25 to 45. And those moms tend to be heavy on Facebook and it just doesn't cost anything. And I think it goes a long way to really keep an active, you know, a couple posts a week, you know, good content, variety of content, not using which you would say like canned posts, but like good, unique posts that are photos that you take. And I've, I've had a lot of success. I've had a couple of them go kind of mini viral, a few juice, like before and after zirconia, full mouth rehab cases that, you know, got a couple thousand shares and got a lot of patience off of that. So it just goes a long way and it doesn't really cost you anything to do some Facebooking, a little bit of boosting here or there if I want to post to be a little heavier, but really encourage people to look at staying on top of their Facebook presence, if you want a, a cheap way to grow your practice that way. Great guy, great episode, especially if you're a pediatric dentist or you're, you've been thinking about getting into pedo or maybe you're doing your own startup and you're thinking about doing a pediatric startup, this is a fantastic, fantastic episode. Even if you're just a general dentist or thinking to do a startup, this is just a great episode. Lots of advice, lots of lessons learned here. Casey is the host and owner of the Bruise and Tiny Teeth podcast and Quiver Creek Pediatric Dentistry. And in this episode, you kind of can hear and see just how clear Casey's vision is. And a little trend I've noticed is I mean, this is like goes without say, but if you notice a lot of the our guests on previous episodes, the clearer their vision was, the more closer they got to that target of, you know, obviously breaking even, uh, scaling their practice pretty quick, all these things, despite doing things during COVID or a pandemic or anything like that. So anyways, in this episode, we talk with Casey, 
and we discuss how he hasn't even been open for a year. He broke even on his first month. And he's currently, last month, he got 190 new patients, guys. Can you believe that? 190 new patients. He's always getting over 100, obviously. So we discuss what he's doing for his marketing and advertising, how he's spending so little on marketing, but getting so much. And so what exactly is he doing for marketing and advertising? He lets us know that. He also discusses um, how he's also taking certain insurances right now, right? And how he plans to cut back. Specifically, he's taking Medicaid. Now, I don't want you guys to be like, oh my gosh, Medicaid, no wonder. Yeah, of course, this comes a lot of headaches. No, there's something to this game. And he breaks it down literally step by step on how he is efficient with his time with Medicaid patients and how it works out. So listen to that, especially if you've been thinking about accepting these type of patients or this type of insurance. Listen to this specifically. We also discuss how he's in a rural area and how that is a great, fantastic perk and how he found the demographics and did his own research for the location he's in right now. We also talk about when did he start paying himself at the break-even point? How much did he make? Uh, what's a break-even point for him? How much is he paying himself currently? What's he doing with extra funds and things like that? We talk about his employees, how he hired them, how many employees he has. And we also talk about growing pains. What major growing pains is he encountering right now? What struggles and difficulties has he encountered throughout this whole process? And so much more. So guys, this is a fantastic episode. Definitely bookmark it if you can. Without further delay, here is Dr. Casey Getz. Casey, how's it going, man? Hey, I'm doing good. Thanks for uh, having me on. I'm excited to get together and talk about some startup stuff. It's going to be fun. I know, yeah. I uh, the other day I was thinking about this. I was talking to my wife actually about this. I was like, hey, you know, Casey's a, a big time. Uh, you're a hunter, right? Oh my gosh. Is that a joke? I mean, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, that's an understatement, but yes, very into it. <laughs> I have been obsessed lately with watching Meat Eater. Uh, oh my gosh. It's so good. It's so good. Is that, is that how you roll? Like I, we were looking at it and we're like, this man has patience of the patients, like all the patients in the world. Right. So not just rush it. Right. Well, so I feel like hunters fall into one or two categories. Like a lot of people, when they perceive hunters, they think, you know, kind of like rednecky, like drive around in an old pick them up truck and blast things and just all about shooting stuff and, or, you know, and, and that's like a true for a lot of people, but then there's another level of it where you really get to like understand and respect the process for like how primal it is just because our ancestors came from, I mean, none of us would be here if our great, great ancestors, you know, lineage came from strong hunters and gatherers. And that's just factual. Like if you weren't a strong hunter or gatherer, then you starve to death. So it's very like ingrained in our DNA. And when you can tap into it and respect, you know, fully involve yourself in the process from like, you know, you scout the animal, you kind of know what you're after, you practice patience and you study and you just, I don't know, it's just, there's something very naturally fulfilling about going out and like knowing exactly how you got your food, dragging it home and then yeah. eating it. Like it's just such a clean, organic way to like obtain your food that I just, I've really developed a respect and appreciation for the whole process. Yeah, man. It's awesome. I, I really, really like it and appreciate it. I mean, like a lot that's, more. I like how he appreciates it too. He's not just out there like, you know what I mean? Killing everything mm -hmm. and being like, that's it, you know? <laughs> 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, so I know we had talked about this, but it's kind of how I structured my office when we set up because the fall is, you know, the big time when 
it's a good time to be outside in the outdoors and there's hunting season, things like that to do. So being a pediatric dentist, I staff my office in the summer. Like right now it's, we've been slammed. So it's like five days a week, full throttle, like a bajillion patients and really high numbers. And then in the, so I go five days a week. And then in like September, when kids go back to school, I take a couple weeks off. I cut to like three days a week. And then October and November are pretty light too. I just take a lot of time off in the fall and then go back to like, you know, four to five days a week, mostly five days a week, the rest of the year, like December through May and then boot back up to summer. So it's kind of nice with pediatric dentistry. It fits really well if you're into like an outdoorsman lifestyle. It really lends itself well to it, which is cool. That's nice, man. So then talk to us. Tell me a little bit about your past, your present. How'd you get to where you are today? Okay, so... So I am a, a pediatric dentist. I currently practice and own my own office that I did as a startup this last fall. Um, we've been open for about eight months, but I'm in Northeast Missouri in a little farm town called Troy. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially from Iowa, my, uh, my parents are, you know, I don't come from a dentist family per se, but I did, uh, I was kind of interested in healthcare field. I worked full time a lot of summers when I was growing up in college and stuff at like an engine shop. and. Um, was in there one day and was selling like lawnmower parts to a guy, young guy, really cool. We really hit it off. And we were talking, he asked me what I was going to school for. And I said, I don't know, like pre-med didn't really, you know, maybe veterinary medicine didn't really know. And he's like, Oh, I'm a pediatric dentist. Like you should, uh, you know, you should come hang out, shadow my office. I was like, that kind of sounds cool. So I went in and was shadowing him and, you know, within 15 minutes was like, this is wicked cool. Like, this is what I want to do with my life here. Like I loved the fast pace of it. I loved, you know, this, you know, it just, I don't know, like the first kid that hopped up in the chair hopped up and was completely backwards, like boots up on the headrest and head down by the butt of the chair. And he just rolled around the other side and worked with it and counted the teeth. And it was just really cool. I'm like, man, I could definitely see myself doing this. Cause I, I liked the idea of being a business owner. I liked how fast paced it was. I liked the interaction between the kids and the parents. So I totally switched majors, did my, you know, all my dental school training immediately matched to peds all at the university of Iowa. And then my wife is a pharmacist and needed to finish up some training up in Minnesota for a year. So I briefly associated between graduating in 2019 from residency and then COVID hitting. So I got, you know, seven, eight months in, which I learned a lot in those eight months. Um, really good group of guys up in St. Cloud, really good experience, learned a lot. But uh, ultimately, I wanted to be closer to a little family, like my wife's family's from Peoria, Illinois, and I've got family in Iowa and Northeast Missouri, St. Louis area. So once COVID hit and everybody got shut down, that was kind of a blessing in disguise where I I was like, you know, this is going to be my time to put in the work and figure out how to do this startup that I've I've wanted to do for a while. So, um, you know, we can dive into that because I, I did a lot of it, the, the startup process myself to kind of keep costs low and I had the time on my hands. So I did did a lot of stuff myself, did demographic analysis, built out the space in a lease space and hired the team and opened up in October of 2020. So we're not quite to the year mark. We're getting eight, nine months, something like that. Uh, but super, super busy. I'm the only pediatric dentist in kind of a semi-rural area, but I cover most of Northeast Missouri. and. Um, it's been kind of off to the races since then. And we've, we've grown exponentially since opening and still not really a lot of signs of slowing down, which is a good problem to have. And, and that's where I'm at today. So we're looking pretty good, man. So you haven't even been open for a year. No, I have been open, whatever we're at now, this is August. I opened <laughs> October. Um, I've been working on it obviously quite a bit longer than that, but yeah, about eight, nine months. 
Um, and you know, when we first opened, I had a lot of patients lined up on the books, you know, before we even opened, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about how, how to kind of make that happen, but just endless comp exams, new patient exams. And then, you know, over the course of this year have just tried to build the recall base, a really, the area I'm in super high cavity risk because it's rural, a lot of working middle-class families and their kids eat junk food and all have cavities and half of them take juice to bed. So it's just endless amounts of decay to fix. So it's a very operative, heavy practice, tons of sedations. Like I've got over a hundred kids on my sedation list, which is not good. I'm out to like January, February. So I'm doubling the number of days I'm doing in 2022 because I do in-office general anesthesia. I contract an anesthesiologist to come in. Um, so just lots of growing pains in the first eight or nine months. And I've definitely made some mistakes, but I've, I've had a lot of really good growth, which has been cool. Dude, that's awesome. So you only associated for seven to eight months and then you decided to do your startup, right? Correct. Yes. In, in those seven to eight months, what were some things where you're like, actually, what was the, what was the point where you're like, I can't do this no more. I don't even want to do this no more for these people. I mean, I know they were your friends and everything, but like, what were some mistakes you saw? What were some things you took along into your practice? Yeah. So honestly, I, um, I had thought about trying to do a startup right out of residency and, uh, and that was kind of my intention for a while. And then my wife, we kind of made the compromise. We needed to at least give it a try because she needed to finish up uh, a year of residency for herself up in Minneapolis. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll try the associate thing for a while. But initially I, I wanted to start up right out of residency, but uh, I found out pretty quickly that even if you're not building a building, doing a startup is very capital intensive and it's very demanding on your cash flow. And the, the thing that makes it tough is you, you really need, I would say at a minimum, if you're trying to do a startup out of dental school or residency, you can't be broke doing it. You've got to, I mean, you don't have to have all your student loans paid off, but you've got to have some cash in the bank. Like, at least to the tune of minimum 30, 40,000 bucks, I would say to be comfortable. And cause it just, there's a lot of things that you need, you know, startup funds for, for assigns and a lawyer and a down payment for the lease space and contracting and license fees. And there's just, you know, a lot of things that demand that, that cash. And so that was where I kind of ran into it. I was like, man, I don't know if this is going to happen. In retrospect, it was kind of a blessing in disguise because COVID would have made it really tough that first year. Cause I would have only been open you know, that first seven, eight months and then COVID would have hit and it would have been uh, kind of a struggle. So, um, so I did the associate thing. Honestly, the practice was really, was great. It was a different style of practice than what I was, than it was more my style. They, um, the two guys I worked with were really um, put emphasis on like really good patients. They didn't see any Medicaid or HMOs. It was mostly fee for service and a few PPOs, but in general, like high profile clientele, really clean, you know, professional, uh, everything was clean cut. They just catered to a higher demographic, very recall heavy and not very restorative heavy. I just didn't feel like I was, you know, I just kind of got bored a lot. You know, I didn't see that many patients. I was still at big days, but you know, I just was like, I felt like there was still a lot of kids that got turned away from the office that I was sitting around and happy to work with. And at least I figured, you know, if, if I'm young and full energy, that's the time I need to be really cranking it out. And that, that was maybe the most frustrating part to me was just not being as busy as I kind of hoped I would. But, uh, I, I think if I wanted to be in that area long-term, they would have been a good office to partner with, but uh, ultimately, uh, location was the biggest thing. Like I, Minnesota was a little cold for my wife and I wanted to be a little closer to some family and it ended up just 
making a little more sense to head that way. But I will say I learned a lot in that year of associating. Learned uh, I was always picking the office manager's brain about insurance stuff. Um, I learned a lot of little cool clinical things. It's just nice to get a get a little perspective of private practice. You know, even if it's for a year, I kind of would encourage. Certainly, I'm very pro startup, very pro practice ownership. But I also think, and, and I don't want anybody thinking they need to associate for five or 10 years, but like a year, maybe even two, if, if you need to just kind of get your feet under you, get your finances in line, have a pile of cash there. I think there's a lot of benefits to doing it that way versus trying to do it cold, you know, right out of residency or right out of your training. Yeah. What would you recommend, Casey? Let's just say you do have cash flow, right? Like on hand, but you're right out of residency and like just right out the gate. Do you still recommend like, okay, you know what? still do it for experience like a year? Mm. Um, it it d- depends on, I would say it depends on where you're going, trying to give like a very direct answer and, and not like something big, but mm-hmm. it depends on your projections on how aggressive your growth is going to be in your practice. I would say if you want to go and open a practice in an area that's competitive, where you're trying to be kind of in that niche sort of high profile, I want to be completely fee for service and it's going to be tight because you're not going to have cash flow. If you're, if you're trying to go into a city or like a more expensive, higher cost living area, your, uh, your profit margin is going to be dramatically cut because your, your just expenses are so much higher. Whereas if you know, okay, I'm going to be the only guy in an area, or if my practice is kind of rural and I can kind of call the shots, my competition at a minimum. And if you're willing to sort of more commit, like I, I went full time, like after COVID and opening the practice, I just jumped in five days a week and just kind of all my chips on the table, like, burn the ships, if you will, like we're going all in, it's going to be an all or nothing deal. And it, it turned out to be a really good uh, choice. So if you have the ability to do that, and you have the the cash on ha- cash on hand or a spouse to kind of float the boat with personal finances at home, that's a good way to do it. Um, so basically, the short answer summarizing that if you're coming out of training, if you've don't have a lot of debt that's really strapping you down. If you feel comfortable clinically, if you've got a really good game plan in place and you're going to a high demand area and you're just an organized person with the plan willing to go all in. But if you don't check some of those boxes, it might be a better idea to associate for a little bit first and really make sure you know what you're doing before making the dive, I would say. Yeah. I think a lot of it can be like um, paralysis by analysis. You know what I mean? Where you're like, at least for me, I know, like I can probably have all the check boxes like checked. And I'm like, there's probably a box I'm missing somewhere. So let me give it another year. Right. And then you're just stuck and then, and not opening it. Right. And yeah, it does. And it's, uh, I think Howard Ferran, a good course, by the way, is one I listened to during startup Howard Ferran, uh, the dental town guru. He's got a 30 day dental MBA on YouTube. That's a really good podcast if you're interested in practice ownership, but he talks about, you know, starting a practice is like having kids, you know, you're never going to be ready you know, it's easy to sit there and get really overwhelmed by numbers and stuff like have a good game plan, do your homework, and then just like make a call, make a decision and commit, you know, you can sit there, you're never going to fully be ready, you just kind of have to do it. And five years from now, time's going to fly. And you're gonna be like, man, I'm really glad I started that when I did, because it only gets harder, the older you get. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah, that's awesome, man. So let's, uh, let's dive into your business a little bit. Um, yes, your build out. How does it look like? How much was it? Or first and foremost, like, how'd you get your loan? Who'd you get your loan with? Oh my God. Okay. So um, I got, do you mind, let's take a tangent to this because I, yeah. I wrote down some notes here as far as like this practice thing goes, because I figured maybe I can give some perspective on numbers and growth and size of my practice because, you know, anytime you listen to a guy on a podcast or you're getting your information anywhere, you need a vet to make sure that person has some good credit or some street credit or actually 
knows what they're talking about. So just to, yeah. to give some background on what my practice looks like. So, you know, that I kind of know, you know, have a general sense of what I'm doing. So <laughs> my practice from a 10,000 foot view, I'm in about 3000 square feet in a commercial lease space. Obviously I'm a pediatric dentist. So that's, that's a good size for pediatric dentistry. I have seven, seven chairs, three quiet ops, four open bay. One of my quiet ops is a large surgical suite. My demographic area is, I think the county that I'm in is about 50 or 60,000 people, but growing. And uh, I'm the only pediatric dentist in the county, but I'm also kind of the last one up to Missouri border. So I do, I've got a lot of rural route kids and city route kids and really growing area, but it's not a super high income area. It's, um, you know, there's Toyota factory, very middle class, um, not super high household income. So you don't need that to be crazy busy and you know, successful there. So that's kind of my demographics, 3000 square feet. My practice loan was half a million uh, from Wells Fargo. And I'll give you some details on that. Right now, my, my patient flow, I see, I think on average around 130, not 135 to 140 new patients a month. I think last month was my highest month at 189, 190, or uh, yeah, 190 new patients. And about 40% of those are Medicaid. So I do take Medicaid as a pediatric dentist, especially at first. I just did really put a lot of butts in seats. Um, I'll probably cut back on it when I get a little bit more established, but I just wanted to get the machine up and running right away. So pretty high new patient flow. Otherwise, I'm in network with Delta. Everything else is fee-for-service. And I, I see quite a few kids you know, out of network or cash, a lot of rural farm families cash. So a nice, healthy blend of the three. Um, I think you know, my, I'm probably on track to do around 900 this first year in collections, which has been a really solid first year and uh, been able to keep my expenses really low, you know, well under 50% in that 40 to 45 range. So a lot of growth, keeping expenses in check. I try to kind of run a lean overhead as, as far as keeping expenses down, but I do, you know, I try to tr treat my team really well, do a lot of fun things there, keep real competitive salaries because I, I like to kind of treat them like family if I can and always be thinking of those guys. So we've got a good team and have been building, so they've kind of helped me build my systems as we've been, been growing. So that's just to give people, a, a, you know, a big picture view of what my practice sort of looks like. That's kind of the scope of what we're talking about for this first year. Man, um, that's, that's amazing. Casey. Yeah. Yeah. It's been good. A lot of growing pains, but a lot of good numbers that first year. So going back to what you were saying with all that being said, I, I knew I wanted to, you know, commit to this area long-term. So I did, I used car as my commercial realtor. We kind of knew a space that made sense, a commercial it's like a commercial medical building mm. where I had an orthodontist in the same building. There's a community health center in the basement. There's a grocery store next door, daycare across the street. It's just it, the area made a lot of sense. Initially, I kind of looked at building my own building, but I didn't wasn't going to be able to swing, you know, 10 percent down on an SBA loan for, you oh, know, yeah. a, a million and a half dollar building. And I don't you know, to me, it's like it's a whole separate business. I want to focus on doing good dentistry and growing that empire. I as of right now, I don't need to become a commercial realtor, you know, or invest in commercial real estate and do the building thing. Uh, so I committed to a 10 year lease, uh, which was helpful because my landlords gave me a lot of tenant improvement. I got really good terms. I got free rent for a while and the benefits of being rural, my uh, square footage cost is really low. I think my total rent with utilities and everything is like 18 bucks a square foot or something, which is probably about half of what it might be in like a big city or you know, in a higher cost living area. So mm -hmm. it was about half a million bucks to build out the space and kind of equip it and everything. 
but I did get some help from uh, my landlord there. And then I worked with Wells Fargo to kind of secure that lending. I thought they sucked, but I thought Bank of America kind of sucked. And I think, <laughs> you know, I think it's just like, you have to pick the devil you're going to lie in bed with. And that's, yeah. uh, you know, it's just, it's the nature of the process that it's a very niche kind of lending process. You know, it's a product that only those guys kind of do. So it's hard to get a, a bank that doesn't really understand it to loan a half million dollars to a, a startup or a business with no revenue and no patient base. And those guys have to do it. So they make you jump through a lot of hoops. It was a huge headache and super stressful, but once the dust settles, you know, you get the loan and you make it work. But anybody who's in that process can kind of appreciate that it's the lending part of it's stressful and not very fun, but it's kind of an, an, a necessary step in securing the funding that you need to get the business up and going. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, man. So then you decided to go with Wells Fargo from that point on, you immediately started construction. How was that process? Who was your contractor and company? Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, I worked with my commercial realtor. We secured the space. We got the funding. I used my dental equipment reps, which was Getzy, more of a Midwest group here. They helped me kind of get a rough layout of the space of that 3,000 square feet. Played with it a bunch of different ways. Uh, and then a local contractor in St. Louis who builds a lot of dental offices helped me build it out. He was, you know, really experienced, had a, a good, fair, competitive price per square feet to build it out. Used a lot of like custom cabinetry. I did a lot of you know, he, he's real good about just putting up walls and getting, you know, good subs in there. I ended up doing a lot of like selecting paint and interior decor, that sort of thing. Uh, my office is far, farm themed, like barn themed, but not like kitty barn themed, but like farmhouse themed, if you will. Uh, so like lots of big canvases of like farm animals and barns and a lot of barn wood where it's, it's, it's kind of, it's not super cartoony where it's little kids. Cause I got a lot of teenage patients and the mom's really like that. So my, my contractor did a great job. Uh, we were worried about COVID getting done in time and supply chain issues, but we kind of jumped in before lumber and everything did its crazy whirlwind thing this <laughs> yeah. year. So time that one. Okay. But we were able to build it and do all that. I think in that three to four month time period, get everything equipped. So that, that ended up being a pretty smooth process from a build out standpoint. And it also lends itself well to the rural area because the restrictions were you know, it's really easy to get a building permit, really easy to, in Lincoln County where I'm at, nobody's ever put in, you know, a big pediatric dental office before. The inspectors just kind of came through checks and boxes. Like I got my inspection to become a surgery center that they, they just, you know, when you're the only guy that's done it, they don't really know what they're looking at and the fees are pretty low. So the whole process was all really pretty seamless from a build out standpoint. So I was pretty fortunate there. I like that, man. I like it. lately what I've been hearing a lot, not a lot, but like a couple of people who are in rural areas, right? They, I've always thought the opposite. I've always thought like, oh, you're only going to, you're going to be fighting for patients or, you know what I mean? Like there's not going to be that many. There's already people that they're used to, but you're kind of showing us like, that's not the case in this scenario, right? Like for right now, right. at least. Right. Yeah. And I, I think, I don't know, that was, you know, on my list of marketing topics and practice growth topics, that's like, Number one is like getting that location dialed in because, you know, I could do the same formula that I did for this practice and do it in, you know, uh, in St. Louis or in Kansas City or like in a, a crowded, more growing competitive area and would definitely not have the same degree of, you know, growth and success that I've had a, sort of had this early on just because there's so many hidden benefits to being in kind of a, a rural area that are really, really cool and kind of underappreciated where like, for example, my wife works 
in downtown St. Louis at a big hospital. And we kind of live in a suburb and I drive one direction and she drives the other. And so we kind of get the benefits of both where like this afternoon, we want to go down to St. Louis and do cool things in the city. We can do that. But as the challenges of startups grow and the, you know, you kind of get squeezed out by corporate and student loans and things, you kind of have to be more willing to, you know, understand the consequences of your decisions of where you start up because the location is everything. And understanding that picking a location that's got a lot of demand in the marketplace is going to really pay big dividends and let you grow so much faster. So I think it's really important to make sure you do your homework and understand the repercussions of where you open that practice at and how it's going to affect your long-term growth. Yeah. Did you feel like you did, or, or was it like um, the realtor? Like, w- were you the one who kind of like, okay, this is exactly where I kind of want to be because of family and everything like that. So let's look for something here. And yeah. You did your research? Yep, I did. I, I kind of did a lot of that work for him because I knew I had some family in this area. I wanted to be able to buy an acreage and have some farm stuff eventually. So I, I, I kind of knew either like Southern Iowa, Northern Missouri, kind of between where my my family's from, my wife's family's from, extended family's from, you know, that corner of Missouri. So then I just started taking pins on a map and looking, okay, where are all the pediatric dental offices at? Put pins everywhere. And then I said, okay, what are the growing areas? What what areas have a lot of people and where is there not a pediatric dentist? And I kind of just started looking at different counties and I kind of went county by county in this whole general area and calculated based off like census data, the population, the county, and then the percentage of uh, the population that's like six and under, and then just started doing the math. How many six and under year olds are there in each county? And there was like thousands and thousands and thousands of them in this like big, large area that I'd be covering. So it just was like in some areas, maybe you need to do more of a demographic analysis and pay somebody to do it, do it right. There's nothing wrong with that. But like in some instances, it just kind of jumps off the page and it's like, okay, this it's too swung in that direction. It just is going to make too much sense. You don't really have to like overanalyze it. Like there's more than enough kids here to sort of keep you busy. So it, it just, it didn't end up being that complex of a decision to, to figure out where I needed to be. Yeah, man. So you already had like you were, you were gun ho You already knew exactly what you were going to do. And did you already get the one acre of land and everything? What, for, for my, for where I'm going to live at or something? You mean? Yeah. Oh no. Cause the housing market's crazy. So we're, we're still renting, but um, on the personal side of things at home, we've been really trying to stay lean. Like I knocked out all my student loans and you know, the last couple months, which is really yeah. cool. Just went, went ham sauce on them, got them, got them all hammered out. So trying to just get really situated, debt-free payoff, fully fund all of our retirement stuff and then kind of saving up for a house. And then once the housing market cools off, kind of go that route. But I I have reinvested a lot of profits from the practice back into itself. I outfitted more chairs, hired a couple more employees, you know, did not really marketing stuff, but just really tried to like continue to grow the practice and open up new chairs and stuff. And that really paid a lot of dividends. You know, it's kind of like a machine, you know, you're, you're building this monster, this machine, and eventually, you know, you get to the point you just got to show up and keep feeding it every day. And that's kind of my goal is just to, to grow the machine and reinvest into it right away. So it, I was pretty profitable right off the bat, but you know, your expenses continue to grow over time. You know, your, your staff costs go up, your supply costs go up. My uh, loans started coming due. My rent started coming due. You know, you start adding benefits and 401ks and insurances go up. So your expenses definitely creep up taxes increase, but um, you know, I pretty much from that first month, I was at least in the, in the, in the black and not in the red, which was kind of nice. So I I was able to have some money left over to reinvest in the practice and 
and kind of continue to grow the business, which has been really beneficial, I think. Did you start breaking even from like, when did you start breaking even? Uh, pretty much like, I don't know, like, I, I mean, the first month I was definitely even, you know, a couple of weeks into it, we had some cash flow, but it's the technical answer is right away from month one. But, you know, your expenses are called my, my bare ass minimum expenses. That first month were like really low, like under, you know, 10,000 bucks or, you know, something like really, really low. And maybe that first month you bring in like 15 grand. And so then the next month, you know, some more expenses come due and you got to buy some more stuff and then it, it just sort of creeps up. So now, you know, depending on how you calculate your overhead, if you don't include over, you know, like the least amount that I need to run the practice. If, if I take away all the frivolous and fluff, if I just need to pay all my bills, pay my staff and everything, you know, it gets closer to that, like anywhere from 30 to 40,000 bucks, something like that, I don't know, roughly in that range. But, you know, it just continues to creep up over time. But from day one, I've been able to at least cover those expenses and have some left over, which has been nice. Are you Casey, like keeping track of every single almost like dollar that goes out and you're like, I know from overtime this week, it's going like that. Or is it like, kind of like, I have no idea. I just know it's going higher a little by little from um, what I can So going back to like when COVID hit and having all this downtime, I did a lot of stuff for the office myself, um, just learning how to do things on YouTube and having all this downtime sitting at home. So like I built my own website, I designed my own referral pads and business cards and just did a lot of things myself. And one of those was I kind of learned how to do some of my own bookkeeping and QuickBooks and payroll. So I use QuickBooks online and I'm always on that bad boy, like booking expenses and doing my payroll and allocating income to where it came from. So it, when you do it yourself, and I, I probably will do it for the foreseeable future because it gives you a really good pulse on where's money coming in and going out in your practice. And so I, I don't like look at it every single day, but you know, pretty frequently I'm running profit and losses, looking at expenses. And then at the end of the month, I, I've got a spreadsheet. I track new patients, track accounts receivable. I track my net production, which is pretty relative to my own practice. I don't use that to kind of compare between other offices or anything, but I do look mm -hmm. at collections pretty closely and say, if we were heavier light one month, um, look at fail, you know, percentage fails. So I look at them pretty closely, but a huge benefit to that. And I would kind of encourage people to, you know, consider doing some of your bookkeeping stuff through like a QuickBooks online doing it yourself because it gives you a really good pulse on, you know, what the numbers sort of look like in your practice. Gotcha. Okay. I like that. All right. So I kind of want to jump into the, the marketing side and, and, and how, how are you using Medicaid right now for, for marketing? Like, and how do you plan to cut back? Yeah. So the Medicaid, I think was, obviously it's not going to be for everybody. This is very relative to my situation, but my theory was that Medicaid I'm kind of using Medicaid in several different ways. I'm the kids obviously are the ones that are high cavity risk. They need our help. A lot of them are full eight pack of stainless steel crowns, super bombed out, need sedation. And I really like my sedation days. I like, you know, heavy, full mouth rehab, pedo style dentistry. So allowed me to stay super busy those days, which are really productive days. You know, you do a lot of dentistry, you have big numbers. So you're benefiting the families that need it the most and the kids that need it the most. But what's nice is these families can't really get care anywhere else at any place that's really good in our area without going to like a community health center or a place that's kind of difficult to work with. So when we opened up and we're trying to get new patients to come in and stuff, a lot of these moms that haven't been able to be seen anywhere else come in, they have a great experience. They love the farm theme. We make them a balloon animal. The, you know, the kids love it. iPads on the wall, like they have a great time and they just become like your biggest 
fan club and they shout the word on the streets to everybody. So you're almost getting paid, obviously, a, a percentage of what you would get at full fee, you know, probably 30, 35, 40 cents on the dollar. But you're getting paid to have a fan base of people that love you and spread the word and really have a strong word of mouth marketing source. So my actual marketing expenses are like 0.13% of my budget. Like I, I really, and it just is like, if I do, I do a couple Yeti cooler giveaways and I sponsor something at uh, you know, a golf tournament, you know, just fun stuff. I don't have to do any SEO. I don't have to do billboards or mailers or anything like that, but I kind of use Medicaid as a way to, you know, have that, that fan base. So I'm real active on Facebook and Instagram. I've got a really good Facebook following and a lot of posts there, but what's nice is if a new mom to the area hops on a mom page or on Facebook and says, Hey, I need a pediatric dentist in this area, I get five, eight, 10 moms that just blow up and say, I'll go see Dr. Casey, like go see Quiver Creek. Like he's awesome. The kids love it there. And so it's really great because it doesn't cost me anything. In fact, I'm getting paid to have these moms just love you and spread the word, but you, you definitely have to be careful. You got to be real efficient with your dentistry. I do a lot of same day dentistry. I do a lot of it as sedations. Uh, I try to keep, you know, keep my eye on if parents fail more than twice, we only schedule them same day. Eventually I might you know, cut my age back, but I, I've, I've kind of stopped seeing teenagers. It's mostly like sort of 11 and under. I won't see a whole family of teenagers at this point, just because I'm not the best office for them. So you definitely, there's a line to walk and over time, I'll probably slim it down, but I'll probably always see some degree of, you know, the, the little kids that have a lot going on that need my help. And I think it, mm -hmm. it makes financial sense to do so if you know how to do it correctly and you're efficient with the way you do it. So then run me through a, an efficient, like, Day, right. Cause I mean, I know for some listening right now, they're probably like, man, that sounds, that sounds brilliant, but how are you doing it efficiently? Okay. So uh, on a given day where my schedule currently at, which keep in mind, it's August. So it's probably our busiest month of the year, mm -hmm. but, uh, I run one column of like heavy ops that are one hour op appointments. A lot of times they're, if they're Medicaid, they're usually half mouths, maybe like a sealant on 14 and 19, um, a couple of clusals and a stainless steel crown or two. I, I really don't do quadrant dentistry on Medicaid. If they need quadrant dentistry and they're little kids, likely they're sedation. So not, not too often am I doing quadrants. Uh, so one hour appointments in the op column. And then I got a column of light ops or teenage ops or sealants speckled with like uh, new patient exams. And then in my open Bay area, I've got recalls and other new patients exams. So I probably see like you know, anywhere from 14 to 20 new patients in a day. And maybe like at this point, eight to 10 recalls and eight or so ops on average, seeing about 30 patients a day. And that'll probably slow down a little bit after, you know, in September and, and kids go back to school. But uh, uh, I do a lot of, you know, I get laughing gas. We go in, we do our local anesthetic. My, my assistants will help me do some sealants. I'll bop over, do an exam or two, run back, you know, knock out that whole quadrant. You know, I do a lot of isolate which has really been great for allowing me to be efficient with half mouth dentistry. And then uh, I'm pretty much moving all day and I've got really well, you know, trained team and good systems. My, my, my girls are great for keeping the office running. Front desk is great at keeping everybody checked in. And, you know, it's, it's only going to continue to get more hectic as we continue to grow. But uh, on average, I'm able to keep a really busy day and say a Medicaid op is like, Here's an analogy that one of my uh, dental school professors gave me is mm -hmm. if you are seeing not Medicaid and you uh, have like a PPO, maybe you're in network with Cigna or something and the kiddo needs sealants, you can do four sealants on that kid and maybe get 
30 bucks a piece or 30 to 40 bucks and you have $150 there. Or I can see Medicaid and do a whole left side, you know, or do a couple stainless steel crowns or something. It takes me a little bit longer, but you know, a stainless steel crown at a hundred bucks a piece. If I do two of them and a little one surface occlusal, you know, and some laughing gas or some nitrous, you're at 250 bucks. So, you know, as long as you're comfortable and fast with the dentistry, it's, it's, it makes just as much sense to me as doing a PPO type setup. Uh, so I just encourage people, if you're, if you can get comfortable seeing kids and comfortable doing some just bread and butter pediatric work, there's, there's no reason why you can't use it to your, your benefit to keep your practice busy, stay growing and, you know, use it to keep the practice healthy and financially sort of make sense and all that too. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I always hear like a lot of people, I remember one of the practices I worked at, they were like, I don't know if I want to do Medicaid because like, you know, the type of patients they come in and they're going to like nickel and dime me and then all these things. Right. And so I, I think you're right. Like you have to do a lot of, um, I guess, research, right. Before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's definitely harder with adult patients. So I, I, if you're a general practitioner or something, general dentist and don't want to see adult Medicaid, I get, you know, it, it's kind of a different realm, but I kind of encourage you, even if you want to call, you know, put an age limit on it or something like if everybody did their share to see a few of these Medicaid kiddos, it would, help immensely. And, you know, it's, and it makes sense to do so. So I think that's a good idea. How much percentage are you using for marketing? Uh, I had it written down and I left it at the office, but it's like 0.13 or something. It's, it comes out to like, I don't know, 300 bucks a month. It's, it's a really very small percentage of my marketing. You know, it's, it's yeah. split up between basically like a few boosted Facebook posts and then a Yeti cooler giveaway here, there, and, and, uh, that's about it. You know, I really, it's, it's pretty minimal, which has been nice, you know, that adds. Yeah. Up. Cause I was going to ask you, like, what are you mainly doing right now for marketing? Like what is, what is to you right now? What is building that strong ties where you're like, I'm getting, I'm getting people, I'm getting new patients and things like that. Okay. So backing up when I first opened up the office, uh, when the office was being built, I got a VoIP system set up. I got a phone phone line set up. And then I kind of made a spreadsheet of all these you know, 50 different referring dental offices kind of in my general area. And I bought a whole bunch of coffee, like 800 bucks of black rifle coffee and put a sticker on it with my face and my, you know, business card and then a referral pad and a whole bunch of stuff like that. So then I just started going office to office because I am very referral based. I get a ton of referrals from general dentists for sedations and stuff, which is, which is nice. So I started that referral base early at like two months before I opened, went around, shook hands, went by in person, dropped stuff off. And then started getting referrals pretty quickly. And then when parents would call, I'd have a spreadsheet. I'd take down their info. I'd say, Hey, I'm going to be opening in a month. We'll give you a shout. We'll get you guys scheduled and kind of go from there. So that allowed me to have 80, 90, hundred patients on the books before we even opened Jeez. up, which was really nice. Yeah. To be busy from day one. So, so that, that worked out great there. And then, uh, over time I do a lot of Facebook stuff. I bet like 70, maybe 75% of patients come from my social media, mostly through Facebook. I do like a tiny tooth tip Tuesday, a lot of like a whole variety of Facebook things, but I like to have really personalized Facebook posts, good photos some Facebook lives, some videos, tiny tooth tips, pictures of kids giving me fist bumps, videos of making balloon animals, just lots of cute things. And I, I get a huge, you know, cause my demographic is mom's age. 25 to 45. And those moms tend to be heavy on Facebook and it just doesn't cost anything. And I think it goes a long way to really keep an active, you know, a couple posts a week, you know, good content, variety of content, not using what you'd say like canned posts, but like good, unique posts that are photos that you take. 
And I've, I've had a lot of success. I've had a couple of them go kind of mini viral, a few juice, like before and after zirconia, full mouth rehab cases that, you know, got a couple thousand shares and got a lot of patients off of that. So it just goes a long way and it doesn't really cost you anything to do some Facebooking, a little bit of boosting here or there. If I want to post to be a little heavier, but really encourage people to look at staying on top of their Facebook presence. If you want a, a cheap way to grow your practice that way. Yeah. When you go out and get these, ref- or you don't get the referrals, they send you referrals. What are right. you giving the, the, the other practices or the, the doctors? We always write like, you know, the referral notes back and say, thank you. And the customer referral notes and I sign them, but uh, once in a while, I'll try to take a day off and do a marketing day and drive around. I think I've done it twice now, but I think my last one was first part of the summer. I did like a little charcuterie trace from a deer that I shot. I had the Amish I see a lot of Amish patients, but I had them chop them up into deer sticks, made little meat and cheese trays with banana chips and nuts and stuff. And then little handwritten thank you notes and kind of went to all the different offices and, you know, stop by. I think just like being a presence and a face and stopping by once in a great while, if, if you're a specialist that gets a lot of referrals is huge because there's a few other pediatric dentists in the area, but they don't ever do those things. And it doesn't take a lot of time and effort to be, you know, develop a relationship with your referring dentist. And it does go a long way. So just little fun things. I think I might do some pumpkin pies like around Thanksgiving time. You know, it doesn't have to be expensive and it doesn't have to cost you a lot, but if you get one referral off of off of all that you're doing, it already pays for itself. You know, so it, it just makes a lot of sense to develop a good relationship there. Yeah, that's awesome. The charcuterie board with the mm-hmm. with the deer that because you can't buy that. You know what I mean? Like you, that's an experience that you're like, hey, look, I shot some deer. Uh-huh. Here you go. You know what I mean? Yeah, and exactly. <laughs> that's brilliant, man. I, I like that it. a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then that's what you're doing for marketing right now. And then from that process on, your employees. I kind of want to transition to that. How did you hire your employees? How many employees do you have right now? I started with three. One up front, one kind of hybrid, and then one in back. And now I'm up to five, two that are full-time up front, three in back, all assistants. Um, probably in 2022, I may hire a hygienist just to help with some of these kids that we have a hard time getting clean, like teenage patients, braces patients. I hire a hygienist like three days a week or something when I'm not in surgeries, and then eventually may get another front desk. But uh nice thing about is here's another hidden gem, dude, of rural is like, I have not had a single problem hiring employees because so many of the people that, you know, want to work in your office are assistants or work in dental offices. And they live in this kind of semi-rural bedroom community because the cost of living is so much cheaper and housing is cheaper. And then they drive into the city and commute into the offices to work. So if you like, you know, if you post a job as a specialist or dental office, you know, in, in the area where they live at, and you are willing to pay like a good competitive wage, there's no problem and no shortage of people applying for jobs. So all five of my girls worked in dental offices, had experience. Three of them worked in pediatric offices. I don't pretend to be a human resource master. I just sit down and we chat. And if I feel like this person, like we jive well and the girls, the rest of the team jive well, and they are local, hardworking, good references, then we make it work. And so far we just, I haven't overanalyzed it, but it's, it's, we've, you know, any office is going to have little drama here, there, little HR issues, but overall, like, I really like the girls and the team that I've put together. And we, you know, everybody's got good and bad days, but in general, I think everybody's been pretty, pretty happy and worked out pretty well, all things considered. Has anybody like quit yet or you have to let someone go? No, not yet. Not yet. Knock on wood. Yeah. (laughs) I think eight months in. So we're going to see if we can 
make the, the year mark. And we, like I said, we certainly, there's times when people do things that are frustrating, but one, one thing that's helped is, and I didn't do this early enough was as far as doing meetings, I found that the perfect way to do it is a once a month sort of team huddle over lunch. You know, the first Wednesday of every month, we sit down for an hour over lunch and I've got defined, printed out itinerary with meeting topics. And here's things that we're doing well. Here's things I'd like to work on. Here's kind of a review of what our last month looked like. Um, and then I always end it with warm and fuzzies, you know, good compliments of things that I saw that were really cool amongst the team members, you know, or somebody that did something well. And we just kind of pour over those. And that's kind of our time. We sort of hash out what things do I want to see improved on, what things are going well. And it's, it's, um, you still have to kind of stay on them about certain things, but it's, it's a good frequency of bringing up important topics where it's not like you're trying to do it every day where it's diluted out, but you're never doing them. Our once a month meetings have really helped to keep open lines of communications of issues amongst the staff and amongst myself. So that's worked out well. That's good, man. That's good that everybody kind of flows together. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. communication is always open and everything like that, because I know when people start growing and growing, they always say like the biggest issues like employee people managing, right? Or like mm-hmm. HR. But I like how you stay lean and mean too. You know, bigger isn't always better. So right, right. I you know, and that seems to be the route in Pete's. You can kind of you got some dentists that want to continue to open locations and expand and and hire associates, but and maybe I go that route someday. But I do really enjoy in the immediate future just having a really efficient established practice, you know, because it's your overhead jumps up a lot when you start opening other offices and your headaches jump up a lot. And to me, I feel like I can do a lot of dentistry and a lot of damage with one or two docs in my current office and just keep it lean and mean, keep it really efficient, keep it all in house and not overly complicate things. Uh, so it's, it's a model that I'm going to stick with because it's, it's worked out well so far. When will you start thinking Casey, like, man, I should probably open up a second one. If you ever get to that point. I, I easily could probably at any point in time. Um, yeah. I could have maybe do a satellite, you know, three to five years down the road, but I just, I, I've got a lot of capacity for growth in my current office. I'll probably hit it sooner than I'd like, but um, I don't know. I, I try to be realistic and not getting ahead of myself. You know, I've got immediate goals for 2022. I, I want to increase sedation days. I want to decrease the number of fails, tighten up my accounts receivable. You know, I've got other immediate goals that I feel like it's important to focus on some short-term stuff there prior to getting ahead of myself. So I'm going to, we'll come back and maybe I'll answer that in a few years or something to see how things change. <laughs> Got you. Yeah. Would you yeah. Do you feel like um, you reached like your immediate goals personally, like in your personal life right now or no? Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, I don't know. It's weird. You know, my, my big one was I wanted to really take a chunk out of my student loans uh, while the interest was at zero. So that's great. Just really get my feet up, uh, you know, under me that way. But we've, we've, I don't know, tried to keep things pretty lean and stuff at home. And yeah, I, I would say in general, yes. But I, uh, so in February, I lost my dad to like a, a, a cancer that was pretty aggressive. And his, his dad, my grandpa died of the same cancer young. And so, you know, that was a bit of a, an eye opener for me where it's like, man, my dad did everything right. And still, you know, died at like 58, 58, 59. And so it was a bit of an epiphany where it's like, I just, I feel like, I need to not dink around with this. So I want to be real smart on retirement stuff. I'm trying to work on getting a 401k going, but I'd like to reach the point where I'm working, not because I need to, but because I enjoy doing it and want to take care of the kids and stuff. But I just, I wanted to keep personal expenses low and keep things nice and tight so that I I have the ability to do the things in life that sort of make me happy. Where Eventually I'd love, I'd love to maybe do pediatric dentistry, like 
two to three days a week, you know, in a perfect world, have an associate that covers me when I'm gone. And then, you know, maybe do some farming stuff. Eventually, I, you know, I like the outdoor scene, the hunting scene. I'd like to own some land and kind of farm part-time and just kind of use that as like a side hustle. And that that's, that's me in, in my perfect dream situation. So that's kind of the goal I'm working towards. But in the immediate future, it's getting a good 401k set up for myself and the team and sort of keeping overhead and expenses low personally and in the business and just making smart, smart decisions there. So I listen to a lot of the Dennis Money Show and a lot of podcasts there. And I, I'm just always reading and trying to pick the brains of people that know more about that sort of stuff than I do to make sure I don't make any big, big mistakes and make smart decisions to take care of myself and my team and everything there. So then if you don't mind me asking how, when you broke even, give me a range, like how much for people listening, like how much, should we, what would, what's a good rule of thumb? Of how much should you take home? Like how much did you take home? So it's, it's hard because it's kind of a moving target. Your first year I'm finding out, I didn't really take anything home the first like five or six months because I spent probably another like, I don't know, 70 to 80,000 bucks of profits on building out another three chairs, hiring more assistants. I put in another 15,000 bucks worth of cabinetry lockers. Um, yeah, a bunch of new chairs, another quiet op. I just pumped a lot of money back into the business that I could have taken home but I didn't. So depends on what your goals there and what your cash flow needs at home are. So I probably started taking home a salary range in uh, probably around month six that jumped up pretty substantially. But, you know, I, I put pretty much every dime of it towards student loans and just trying to knock those out as fast as possible. Not because I needed to, but because that's just is what was my immediate goal and was going to help me sleep a little bit better at night. So, yeah. um, and it's a, another hard question because it's like, okay, on paper, the profits from the practice are, you know, $500,000 or 600 grand, whatever it is. But like, by the time you pay, I pay like quarterly estimates and W2 taxes since it's uh it's taxed, you know, an LLC with an S-corp collection, you, you know, I pay myself as a W2, most of that goes tax. You chunk, carve out a huge chunk for taxes and we're setting up this 401k so I'm with profit sharing. So I'm going to put another big chunk away there, run my wife through the office. So by the time all is said and done, you know, it's, it doesn't end up being as big and cool of a number as you think. But, you know, I kind of have transitioned for like, you know, anywhere from 20 up to $40,000 a month of some take home. Depends on the month, depends on how well things go. But, you know, a lot of those are, a lot of those expenses are going towards student loans and things like that and retirement accounts like after tax taxable retirement brokerage accounts where it's not like you just wake up someday and you're just rolling on yachts and buying fancy <laughs> new stuff you know there's there's yeah. like an endless source of demand on that income stream and you just have to be smart with it but uh you know so we still rent and drive our old cars and don't buy a lot of frivolous stuff and and you know maybe someday that'll that'll come but i i feel like you know, they say like every dollar you can save now is worth eight bucks when you're 60 years old. So just trying to keep sort of that philosophy in mind in these early years so that they pay bigger dividends later yeah. on. Yeah, 100%. I like that. I like that a lot, especially mm -hmm. making like, you know, an emergency fund, investments and things like that. I, I agree with you on that. Like sometimes it's kind of, I know you, you talked about it or alluded to it a little bit in the beginning of the episode where you're like, I'm not ready to do that real estate type of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. It's tricky. Uh, it is. I feel the it same is. way too. And then sometimes I'm like, I should do it. But um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, you have to pick what are you going to be an expert at? And to me, like, I, I don't know, 
you know, it seems like a lot of dentists really like to get into commercial real estate. I don't know the first thing about commercial real estate. I know how to fix teeth and I want to prioritize that. Like, let me, let me phrase it this way. So, you know, you get a lot of dentists that think, man, I can like, I can buy this house cheap and fix it up and make it a rental and do all this, then sell it, make a profit. And you can do all that, but it's a lot of headache. And if you do the math at the end of the day, maybe you're getting pocketing however much profit, you know, like, you know, maybe you make 20,000 bucks or something like that, but that's a taxable profit. Um, You're going to be pay taxes on it. When in reality, if you didn't do that and deal with all the stress and the headaches, obviously I'm just making round numbers here, but you know, you could go to your own practice and tighten up your overhead by 1% or 2% or do just a little bit more dentistry and make the same amount of money without having to go through the headache. So, you know, we just are fortunate to be in a field where you can really capitalize on tightening up your business and understanding how the numbers work in your practice prior to doing any sort of weird side hustles that have a lot more risk and headache without the same degree of return on investment there. Yeah, that's good, man. I like that. hundred percent agree. Right now, what throughout this whole process, Casey, from the moment you, I guess, like signed the lease till right now, if you can recall, what's been some of your biggest fails or struggles or pitfalls? Some insurance headaches, I would say those are probably the things that give me the most stress is uh, Medicaid likes to not pay for some stuff and be difficult there. I would say one of the bigger ones was I did try to go out of network with all insurances from the get-go. Right now, we're just with Delta. Delta, I feel like it should be illegal. Most people know this, but they're frustrating because they like to send checks out of network to parents. And in certain areas, maybe that works okay. But I found out you know, the first three months we were out of network with Delta, I did all this dentistry. And they just kept mailing checks to patients and patients would cash them. You know, dad would cash them. You wouldn't even know about it. And then you call them up and say, hey, you owe us all this money. And parents just wouldn't pay, get frustrated. And we just battled it again and again. And it just realized like this just isn't going to work. So we um, we got a good fee schedule and and that's kind of made our life easy. But I, I definitely, the first six months, even this first year being open, I'm going to do a, a lot of dentistry for free or write-offs or, you know, there's... I found when you open an office, the insurance companies don't know you exist. So you might have a patient that walks in that has an Aetna or a Sun Life or a weird Carpenters Union insurance or something weird. And Mm -hmm. you can submit it through your clearinghouse and that insurance company might get it and say, I don't know who this guy is. And they'll just sit on it because they don't have your EIN, your tax ID. They don't know that you exist. So there's going to be a lot of insurance headaches, write-offs, establishing accounts, I think, in that first year. Um, so I'm optimistic that in 2022, we'll be able to tighten that up, but you definitely pay the price for the fast growth that I have in terms of it's easy to get overwhelmed by all, you know, outstanding claims and difficult insurance issues that are hard to get dialed in that first year. So that's one of my immediate goals in 2022 is to sort of tighten up my percent collection compared to my, my net production. I like that, man. That's good. So insurance, mm-hmm. that's been like the biggest, would you say that's one of the major growing pains that you've been? Talking about a hundred percent. Yep. It absolutely is. That's the biggest one for sure. Yep. And that, and my skip, my sedation schedule being booked out. Um, I'm doing every other Friday for, I bring in a pediatric anesthesiologist and a nurse and they bring in all the sedation supplies. We do nasal intubations and general anesthesia, full mouth cases on, you know, every other Friday. And I do five to six cases a day. And right now I'm, I'm booking out way further than I need to. So I'm going to like every other, like Tuesday, Friday, and then a Wednesday, and then Tuesday, Friday. So like five to six days a month in 2022. So I'm hoping that'll get caught back up, but it's going to make for a much better work schedule where I'm, I'm doing a lot of sedation days. And I think it's going to be a more efficient way to run the office, getting caught up there. 
That's nice, man. Man, mm-hmm. Casey, I feel like you kind of go like everything's like very jam packed, but it's lean. Like, you know what I mean? Like you're you're it's going good. It's going really, really good. But I feel like there's a lot going on that you have to like handle and juggle and stuff. And on top of that, you also have your podcast. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah get, can, can I get my podcast to plug here? Quick? Yeah, of course. About that. Huh? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I learned how to do a lot of these practice things from other podcasts. Like I listen to your podcast. I like Howard Ferrans. He kind of has quit doing them recently. Dennis Money Guy Show, Dentrepreneur. I just got a lot of podcasts that I was listening to during the startup process. So I kind of longed for more pediatric specific content. And there is a pediatric dentistry podcast, but it's sponsored by the AAPD. So it's it's a bit more filtered and more PC than I was kind of after and didn't have a lot of business topics. So I was like, man, I, I kind of want to fill that void. So I started a podcast. I don't pretend to be an expert on it. It's literally just me talking to interesting people in pediatric dentistry about a variety of like pedo topics, but it's uh, the bruise and tiny teeth podcast. So I do like, I do an episode a week, you know, and it's, it's almost always a pediatric dentist or it's related to pediatric dentistry, but we talk about like practice management, startup stuff in pediatric dentistry. We talk about like hot topics like SDF, hall crowns, space maintenance, general anesthesia, sedation cases, ortho stuff, just a lot of like general peds topics. And the theme is, you know, with the bruise and tiny teeth, we drink a beer and chat for an hour. And when the beer is gone, we're good on the podcast. So it's been, (laughs) it's been really fun. It's definitely a learning curve and I don't really do anything. I don't make any money. It's just kind of like a cool way for me to meet new people and have cool conversations. So it's, it's kind of just a growing like little side project that I work on. And there's definitely a learning curve to having good sound and good content. And it's definitely not as easy as, as you know, for sure, just like picking up a a microphone and just having conversation. There's a lot that goes in a lot of work that goes in behind the scenes, but it's been a, it's been a a really fun side project that I've been working on. And it's kind of me leaving my little mark on pediatric dentistry. And I get reached out, you know, I get uh, shout outs from a lot of young pediatric dentists and residents that say they listen, that they, you know, have picked up some pearls and stuff. So it's nice to know there's a few pediatric dentists out in the world that maybe listen once in a while so that I'm not just talking to myself. It's pretty cool. (laughs) I know. And when you get like the first person to reach out to you, you're like, this is not my mom. (laughs) (laughs) right yeah exactly no that's awesome man i appreciate that Uh, yeah but definitely everybody if if you're listening go ahead and check that out go in the show notes below and check it out but um anything else casey you want to give us advice on specifically about like ownership practice or or just like what you're doing yeah you know we uh i'm thinking back to our conversation we were really um inclusive we went, went over a lot of really good topics marketing i don't know i if I had to summarize this podcast, I would say, you know, practice ownership is great. Uh, it's stressful. You're never going to feel ready. But if, if you're the type that's interested in owning a practice, do your homework, have a game plan, put a business plan together, and then don't be afraid to, you know, you're never going to feel ready, but just start the process. It's going to be stressful for a while. There's stages you go through. It's going to feel like you're lighting money on fire, but just like have some cash saved up on hand, have a game plan. Don't be afraid to do things yourself. Don't be afraid to look to understand the benefits of going to an area with less competition. You know, you don't have to be in in the middle of a saturated area to be successful or a high income area. There's a lot of cavities in semi-rural America that aren't getting fixed because there's a lack of access to care. So really think hard about demographics and startup location. 
keep your overhead low. Don't be afraid to do like boots on the mount, the boots on the ground marketing, like go out, meet a lot of people, shake hands, have people over for dinner, go out to lunch, just be a people person. Cause that kind of thing goes a long way. And then keep a real active Facebook, social media presence. If you can learn how to do a crown prep or a pulpotomy or anything like that, you can learn how to post a few cool photos on Facebook and use that to your advantage. Um, or, you know, learn how to do your own website, your own QuickBooks. You know, there's endless resources we have now that people 10, 15 years ago did not have access to when they did startups, you know, with the internet and everything. So just don't be afraid, be a people person, do your homework. And I think in five years when, you know, you're living the good life as a practice owner, you'll look back and say, man, that was a really good decision. I'm glad I did it when I did. And I certainly encourage Michael, if anybody's got questions or wants to, you know, hit me up about anything specific or P specific or startup specific. You can throw my email down in the, the show notes or whatever, but C gets G O. So it's C it's in Casey, then G O E T Z at Troy, T R O Y pediatric dentist.com. Or if you want to text me, my cell is 641-425-7279, you know, hit me up. I'm an open book with this kind of stuff. And I, I feel like we need to do a better job. This dental community in general about not being afraid to talk about, to collaborate on practice, metric, startup stuff, numbers, because you can't really grow unless you are not afraid to talk about some of these more taboo topics with like numbers and overhead and profit and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm a pretty open book. If anybody wants to pick my brain, happy to entertain or check out my podcast or get in touch with me. So um, certainly here's a resource for anybody that's, that's interested in learning some more about how I do what I do. Awesome. Awesome. So guys, that's all going to be in the show notes below reach out to Casey. And Casey, thank you so much for being with us. It was a pleasure and we'll hear from you soon. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks for having me on and we'll do it again sometime. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I truly appreciate it. Remember, if you like what you're listening to, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. Five star preferably, but if you can, uh, leave us a review on iTunes. And Casey, thank you so much for being on this episode, man. We truly, truly appreciate it. I feel like I've gotten to know you a little bit more not only because I've been binge watching Meat Eater, but like I know your lifestyle a little bit better and I feel like I can relate a little bit, keeping it lean and mean. And I, I really, really appreciate that. And I like it. So thank you so much for coming on the episode, man. Guys, if you want to reach out to Casey or you just want to hear him, remember, definitely listen to the Bruise and Tiny Teeth podcast. Go in the show notes below, reach out to him. Or you can join the Dental Marketer Society Facebook group. That's the first link in the show notes below to that Facebook group. It's completely free. And you can talk with our guests or you can continue the conversation about this episode or any episode that you've heard in the past. So thank you guys, as always, for tuning in. I really, really appreciate you. And I'll talk to you in the next episode. Well, it seems like too. There we go. A lot of uh, a lot of pediatric dentists will like, you know, as soon as a permanent pulp becomes involved, they like to just like chuck it to the endodontist without like thinking outside the box. Like, uh-huh. is this something that I can do? So I always told myself, kind of same thing for like extractions. Like, I, I extract a lot more permanent teeth than most pediatric dentists. Um, but it's just like you know, it's I don't do obviously like full root canals, but I'm not afraid to like get into a permanent pulp chamber and like 
do something if it means getting the kid out of pain or something because sometimes like it takes a while to get into the endodontist and stuff but yeah what uh first of all cheers 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 man thanks, thanks for, for yeah meeting me yeah. appreciate it. what how many like of your new practice what are you seeing for like kids like do you see a pretty good a proportion um, of kids or like, i would say i see one or two a week and um and that kid being i would classify as like 14 or younger sure. most likely yeah for me. young teenage range um which there was a time in my so i was uh trained in the army i mm-hmm. saw zero kids for eight years oh, right really? out of dental school um and so it was uh came into private practice as an associate and just jumped in there and got got owned by kids a few times for sure and then, yeah. like tried to stay away from them as much as i could but do you, then do you I, have nitrous I, you know, in your office i do you do I okay do. yeah that's and good it's, it's a game changer for sure uh but yeah, i see and i'd say seven eights probably the youngest is it you know on that i'm normally seeing mm-hmm. uh i have seen like a five or six year old before but that's rare yeah yeah that's weird so like most of these you know the one or two a week you're getting i would assume is a lot of it like bombed out first molars probably yeah bombed out yep 19 and 30s and uh, yeah yeah they're all those poor teeth are (laughs) yeah yeah have a lot of life to see yeah they get off on the wrong foot i see and i i don't know it'd be interesting to get your perspective because i feel like when you're an endodontist you know a lot of times jumping to the root canal nah that's how do i want to say it like you guys obviously do root canals really well, so that seems to be like your frontline thing. But I, I've been progressively doing more and more second molar substitution. Like I, di- I did yeah. one today. This was a good one today. I had a special needs, um, like like pretty severely autistic, um, eight, almost nine-year-old, like full-on headphones, nonverbal, like earmuff headphones, you know, like I can't tolerate any sensory stuff. Um, teeth were just like bombed. And so I attended the treatment plan like possible coronal pulpotomies, like vital pulp therapy on 3, 14, 19, and 30, and then permanent stainless steel crowns. But she was so combative in clinic, even just for the exam, we had to hold her down just to get a quick look. Mom physically can't brush her teeth. Mm-hmm. So um, when we got in there today, got her sedated, cleaned her all up and took x-rays, and like 19 and 30 were well into the pulp. Like, you know, you can't pulp test a kid like that, yeah. right? So you're just like, well, you remove decay and see where it goes. But it for sure would have been at least a couple round, you know, uh, chrono, chrono pulpotomy with MTA. But then you roll the dice. What if it doesn't work and you do this heroic stainless steel crown, um, you know, and it doesn't work. All of a sudden you're finding a way to do a full root canal again on another sedation and parents are paying for all this. So yeah. ultimately it's like we ended up, I ended up taking out all four six six year molars and letting the 12 years drift forward and kind of fill that space. Um, I did just think she's a really, really good candidate because I could challenge most other, you know, anybody would try to say, oh, you should save those teeth. Like I just, I would love for somebody else to be in my shoes looking at those teeth. Like what other options do you have on a kid like that? Granted, that's kind of an extreme yeah. example, you know. There's a lot of ways that can go south, like go sideways on you where, like, like you said, you had to go back and do it or they don't come back and see you and they have an abscess for three years. Right. And and then they're in a lot of trouble right. down the road. Yeah. Um, but you know, if it, if it's an open apex case on a young mm-hmm. on a young kid, or um, that vitality is still there, hold cap away. I think the research is steadily going that that's more and more. Okay, so let's uh, talk about that. Let's. So, you know, that this is another one where what they teach you in your endo course in dental school varies from what they kind of push 
in pediatrics because a lot of times the trend is like young kids maybe not super cooperative like you don't want to do that root canal if you don't have to so like in dental school you know in order to get a definitive diagnosis whatever you know you start removing decay um, are you into the pulp or are you not into the pulp you know you do the root canal indirect pulp cap whatever but like you know in pedo it seems like there's you know if like I don't know I feel like I've switched my mindset where I say I can always do the root canal later but sometimes you know is there is there anything wrong with trying to stop short of the pulp and do an indirect pulp cap or maybe do a small direct pulp cap or maybe do a coronal pulpotomy with MTA or something like that mm -hmm. versus doing the full root canal you know and I, I don't know if you've seen enough of these come back to sway one way or the other versus what kind of outcomes you're seeing or mm -hmm. if it just depends on maturity yeah. of the tooth or what um, you see so if you followed uh, an indirect pulp cap or a pulp cap or uh, a pulpot partial, partial pulpotomy mm -hmm. and you see that patient 20 years later um, doing a root canal then is a real challenge because of all the calcification mm -hmm. that occurs, that reaction of the pulp tissue. Sure, just, sure. It constricts, um, and I've run into some real nightmares there. Um, but uh, as far as indirect versus directly just going in there and getting it out, I think mm -hmm. you're better off to get all that decay out. Mm -hmm. um, if you can control the bleeding of that tissue, then I, you should be able to get them a long time comfort in that tube. Okay. Um, and I think a lot of our studies show, like we talk about MTA. There's mm -hmm. a lot of other bioceramic materials. Are you? A, what do you? Now. What tends to be your go-to bio? I like uh, that Brassler endosequence root repair material. Okay, is use. that like? Is that that's not BC putty, is it? It's it's like BC similar. Putty. And right. There's a there's several different companies that make it now. The patents up on that. Okay. It's easy to work with an MTA, sure. and it doesn't stain teeth. That's nice. Like MTA. Yeah. Um, Studies show the most important thing is that it's sealed and there's no micro leakage. It sure. doesn't really matter what you put in there as long as that restoration is not, you know, you keep bacteria out of there, mm -hmm. then there's a good chance, especially in a young patient, that their pulp space is going to be able to to bridge that. Okay. Create that didn't bridge. Makes calcify. Sense. So, um, so going back to what you had said about, you know, you see that patient 20 years later, mm -hmm. um, you know, if you, is there a reason, do you find a lot of them need to have treatment 20 years later or it can sometimes that MTA coronapulpotomy, if everything's sealed and maybe it gets a crown on it and stays asymptomatic, does that wind up being definitive treatment a lot of times and the, and the tooth turns into a block of wood and the pulp shrinks to nothing? But like, how often do you actually need to do a root canal or? So that, that is a hard one for me to answer because the patients that I'm seeing mm -hmm. are the ones that are having issues. I don't get to see those oh, sure. patients that, oh, that looks great, right. it's fine, no issue. Um, so all the ones I'm seeing, they've been screened by their general dentist or pediatric dentist, right. and oh, there's pain, there's a lesion that's developed, mm -hmm. this, this needs a root canal or something done with it. So I don't get to see all the successful ones. Sure. Um, so I can't give you a definitive. Well, no, that's okay. That's an that honest well. answer because I, I mean you're appreciating your own uh, unique biases mm -hmm. to what you're seeing. I guess you know. Mm -hmm. What about like for indirect pulp caps? Say, do you, um, you know, I've seen studies before that shows different types of dentists, different specialists, their mm -hmm. degree of how much decay they remove. And like, just like what you would think, pediatric dentists remove the least and endodontists <laughs> re remove the most, you know, mm -hmm. which just is like yeah. product of your training makes sense, uh -huh. you know. But um, I'm curious, you know, are there plenty of times where you get referred some large decay and you start removing, you know, maybe it tests like kind of irreversible symptoms. So you start removing decay and, you know, you find up or you wind up 
you know, you get really soft, like the mushy, fluffy stuff out of there, get really clean margins, and then maybe you just got a little of like that little, like slightly darker leathery type denton on the floor. Do you still find yourself, do you ever find yourself, or how often do you find yourself shopping, stopping short? And if so, what are you placing there over the pulp to kind of call it a direct pulp? indirect pulp cap instead so it has been i don't think i've done an indirect pulp cap as an ended on oh, really so that should answer your, <laughs> so your funny. question so yes yeah i'm on that aggressive sure yeah it makes sense uh regimen but uh and a lot of what dictates that decision point for me is how close am i to the pulp you know right. it's we're kind of guessing a lot of the times mm-hmm. you know we think it's right there we think it's right there and um, it's it's hard to measure remaining denton thickness. Right. You can't, you can't do Well, that, in your so. defense, too, going back to the type of patients you're getting, most of the patients, I assume, getting referred to you are probably pretty obvious root canals. Like mm-hmm. the decay is obviously right there, you know. Yeah. The ones that the decay, there's an obvious denton bridge are probably getting restored and not mm-hmm. sent to you, I would assume, right? Yeah, yeah but, exactly. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I am pretty aggressive on, on getting it out of there. Sure. Um, you know, a lot of times, and, and this is, you know, younger, you know, teenagers, they're going to get a crown on, you know, they're getting to that age where they can get a permanent crown on something now. And yeah, they may have a large decay in the tooth, close, approximating, you know, the nerve space. And uh, a lot of dentists, they want you to take the risk out of them prepping this tooth. Sure. Is this going to be symptomatic afterwards? That's what they're trying to avoid right. a lot of times. Right. So the, some of these root canals we do are preventative. To prevent mm-hmm. that from happening, right? Um, and uh, so that's just kind of there's there is there's between the specialties there's some difference there, right? Some difference okay, there, so. so let's say that you're gonna have you have a good case for apexogenesis, which seems to be, you know, a lot of these references I'm saying for patients that you and I send back and forth. Um, it's a lot of like, you know, eight to ten year olds that like have fairly immature like six year molars or whatever, right? Um, and uh, you know maybe they're good candidates for apexogenesis because they've got an open apex. Like if you're doing apexogenesis, walk me through your um, your order of operations for because obviously you, I assume you do that sometimes or you know because it's yeah. easier to do a root canal if you can let the apex close and maybe do it later. So let's pretend you got one of these kids. So let's say the situation is like is say it's like an eight or nine year old kid and number nineteen has large caries, reversible type symptoms. Um, you get in there and remove decay and you have like a pulp exposure, you know, walk me through how you do like your, you know, your coronapulpotomy to like get apexogenesis to occur and how you follow it up, what type of material you use, like walk me through that type of case. Yeah, so I'm, if I'm going to do a partial pulpotomy, I'm, I'm really looking at the bleeding, what's the tissue telling me? Right. And I'm looking at it with a micro- microscope, you know, sure. and, I, and I don't want to use epi or anything chemicals to try to get hemostasis. I want to see with a pellet with nothing in it, is it still bleeding? Okay. I take that out. So I want to be able to control that because that's going to kind of roughly tell me what level of inflammation is in that tissue. Sure. Sure. Um, But once I get that, then uh, in a a molar, I'm probably going to do a full pulpotomy most of of the time. Yep. It's easier to control bleeding. Right. when you just take it down to that small orifice. I would say most pediatric dentists are huh. probably just going to do, just because like with our primary pulpotomies, you just remove the whole coronal mm-hmm. portion of the pulp and then yeah. place your medicament and go. Yeah. So I think just by habit, that's probably consistent mm-hmm. there. Um, so yeah, 
Uh, and I will all irrigate with with bleach, sodium hypochlorite. Okay. I'm okay, I'm okay with doing that. And so you just kind of irrigate to... the coronal portion just mm -hmm. to clean out any little yep. bits of tissue and, and stuff. And get hemostasis. Uh, once it's dry, um, I use my endosequence material, just pack it down. Pack it in there. And then I like to put, I use BC liner. Um, oh, okay. It's a newer material. It's uh, kind of like a resin modified glass on or liner of some sort, yeah, like a dual it, cure. Um, it is. It's dual cure, which is what I like about it, because a lot of times down in the chamber you can't cure things. Sure. Like very well. Yep. Uh, I use the blue material so that dentists can see it. I think I've, I've no seen idea. that a couple yeah. of years. I actually so really it's it's appreciated because like especially if you send a kid back to put a core in something, uh -huh. it's nice to know like you know me removing a temporary and dinking around in there that those orifices are all sealed off and mm -hmm. nothing's going to get down yeah, in so there. So I'll cover the orifices and the you know chamber the chamber floor sure. with that blue BC liner okay. and, and temporize. Um, but yeah, that it's pretty pretty much simple. So that's and your coronal pulpotomy. Then talk to me about follow-up as far as, you know, at that point, you know, large decay on our number 19 scenario. Do you send the kid to get a stainless steel crown or maybe like mm -hmm. go ahead, get full coverage at that point? Yes. So if they're old enough to get a, a permanent crown, great. If it's a stainless steel, if they're young enough, right. You know, that's, I, like I said, the most important thing is to keep bacteria out of there. So sure. I don't want some resin in there that's chipping out. Yeah, and, and leaking left and right. Leaking left and right. Yeah, yeah. Cover that thing up, and everything will be more successful that way. Um, and you know, follow up. I would do unless they have pain or symptoms. You mm -hmm. know, obviously they call right away. But you know, six months, a year afterwards, yeah. you can check them and kind of see how the health of the tissues are looking. Yeah. Um, if it's like a that's a that's a carious exposure. If you have a traumatic, you know, a lot of these kids. Are, um, Here, hold on just a second. Hold on just a hot second. I don't really have a stop button here. I'll, I'll put that on. <laughs> of course, the guy with the leaf blower is going nuts while we're... Um, you know what? I tell you what. Here, I wonder if I record another one. Okay. All right. Sorry about the interruption. We're trying to do this podcast at a brewery. Because now that we're doing things in person, but classically the guy, like, we got, like, cicadas and rock music and a guy with a, um, a what, like, a leaf blower. So, okay, so we were talking about um, follow-up care for coronal pulpotomies, and you walked us through, like, your sequence, and then, you know, seals the deal, get a good crown on that tooth or get it sealed off. Do you, um, do you find, jeez, uh, we can't get away from the noise. Um so my question was, do you ever consider going back in and doing a full root canal or do you find that there's a need to, or do you, you know, cause that this kind of situation ends up being that block of wood, you know, tough to do root canal 20 years from, from now, uh -huh. or is that just kind of like comes with the territory of going about this way, you know? Yeah. I think it's just part of the business. Part um, of it. I have not had to go back and treat any of the ones I've done. That's and good. That's a, yeah. The end is very low on, on, For sure. on that study there, but, uh. <laughs> No, it makes sense. Um, so yeah, I haven't had to do it, but I, uh, I spent a, in the military. I spent a year in Korea, and we would work on Korean soldiers, and their dental care is completely different over there. They do a lot of pulpotomies and crowns mm -hmm. on adults all the time, and so I, I had a fair number of cases I was trying to treat cases, you know, these these teeth that would become problems down the road. Yeah, I don't know, 50-50 on whether I could get down the roots or not. Oh, really? Um, so that could be 
So, so actually, this is a good thing to bring up. Tell me about um, your training, because I, I can't remember the details, but yeah. dental school, and I know you're in the military and your residency, but just to get listeners caught up, what, what did that look like again? Yeah, so I went to school at UMKC, uh, and then went straight into the Army um, scholarship program. I did an AGD, and that's kind of where I fell in love with doing endo, because mm-hmm. I hated it in dental school. Right, and right. It was like too many hoops to jump through. Um, and then, so I was a general dentist for three years before I started. In the Army? In the Army. Okay. Uh, before I started in a program. Gotcha. Uh, in Augusta, Georgia, Fort Gordon. So how many total years did you end up putting in? Uh, eight years. Eight years? Did you really? Eight years. Dang. Yeah. Nice. So, um, but yeah, no, it was it was good. I got to get out of Missouri for a while. And, uh, so then did you, when did you finish endo residency or what set of years did you do? Uh, I got out of endo residency in 2014. 2014. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then you associate, did you associate like in the St. Louis area here for a while before starting up your own practice then? Uh, I did. So 2017 was when I was officially out of the Army uh, and I, I was an associate for a couple of years. Practice. Yep. Uh, and then just, you know, last May opened up. Yeah, yeah. You, know, yeah, you and practice. I were pretty close. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Ed. You were in May and I was in like October. So, okay. Um, well, that kind of gives people perspective. So you've been, you know, it's nice that you've, I have a new appreciation now for owning your own practice and the ability to like follow up some of the stuff you do. Cause you know, prior to me owning practice, you know, in residency and everything else, you know, you think try of a new way. Yeah. Try different things. And <laughs> yeah. then, but then that patient disappears, then you move and you never get to see the follow up. So, yeah. and it's little things like, like for me, sealants is like a big one because yeah. there's a billion different ways to do sealants. And the literature kind of supports just about whatever route. Do you use a bond or do you not use a bond? What kind of material? Everybody swears by doing it a little differently. You know, do you air braid? Do you what? And so I've tried all these different ways, and I now finally am just on the cusp of starting to see like, do some of the things that I'm doing are they working? Or are they not working? That's kind of nice. You've had a number of years. Yeah, to you know, in the army, it's funny. We used to joke about what we called geographical success. Right. Um, I was never stationed anywhere more than two years. Uh, I guarantee you, patients I had. And during those two years, we're moving during those two years. Right. So you never saw the same people all the time. So mm-hmm. getting that follow-up, sometimes you had to call somebody halfway around the world and say, I've got a patient that's stationed there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to have them call you and can you get a follow-up radiograph for me? Um, so it was challenging to see what your cases are doing, which the great part about private practice is you know what's successful and what's not right. really quickly. Right. You know? Yeah. I don't know. It's a... It's trade-off, but I, I don't know. If, I talk a lot about like startups on these podcasts because that's what I'm really into. But this startup thing's pretty cool. Like, yeah, you know, it's different from you doing it on an endo point of view, I guess. But I know you and I had like the same builder and mm-hmm. kind of started up in that like COVID era of sorts. Yes. So, which is like we're kind of a unique class there. But now that the dust is kind of settled, like it's pretty cool being able to like be really in control and steering the ship of like how you want to practice and how you want to call the shots where you don't have to listen to a higher power telling you what materials you can and can't use and how to do things like it's pretty cool yeah i spend a significant amount of my time like trying new files and new systems right like i'm spending my money on like i'm always honing like how i how i do my art sure sure um and previously i always felt a guilt if i was spending somebody else's money right to try all these things um, so that's nice. If I want to do something, I just do it. 
Let me tell you about this new thing that I've been doing endo related. So I don't know, I doubt you would guess you don't do these a lot, but like um, pulpectomies on like AJ, K and T, that's like a big thing where if a, if a tooth is like, you know, restorable and the kid's not having like, you know, um, if it's not, I don't know, there's various criteria. I should be able to rattle these off with like oral boards. But like if a, if a primary second molar is a good candidate for pulpectomy and you'd like to save the tooth to prevent space loss, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of doing a pulpotomy, um, you do a pulpectomy where say you, you get in there and you remove the coronal pulp and it's still bleedy, you know, um, radiographically looks sound. There's no resorption, there's no mobility, tooth uh, restorable, all those good things. Patient's not, you know, blown up abscess. It's good tooth to do a pulpectomy on. Mm -hmm. You know, that's when you pretend you're an endodontist again, you get your little files out and mm -hmm. twiddle away and it always takes forever. Um, <laughs> I, I bought on, uh, eBay like a hundred dollar little like cheapo knockoff Chinese rotary handpiece like cordless okay. handpiece and I just bought some like cheap little like throwaway rotary files and I've been like pretty impressed at how well it's worked like you know it's not like it's a thousand dollar rotary thing but you're also not doing root canals like I pull it out you know once every couple weeks but you know I, I'll access it and I'll kind of get a bleach pellet in there just to kind of clean the chamber out and then I'll take like my little two round burr and blip the canal so I kind of have a bit of an access you know mm -hmm. and then snake a brooch snake a 15 file and then like as long as I feel good that I've like found the canal I'll just turn that like rotary on and zip it back and forth and it cuts like you know because obviously you're not really determining working length you're just getting the bulk of the tissue out getting it dry then we put in like a vitapex like a calcium hydroxide iodoform paste uh -huh. but um my long-winded way of saying like i was kind of proud that i thought of this like this cheapy idea actually is really really effective from what yeah. i've seen if you can do that if you can do a pulpectomy on a primary tooth and mm -hmm. you're well on your way to becoming an endodontist that's what i'm talking about yeah do you that. ever do do people ever send you referrals for like pulpectomies um, on primary it's, teeth it is very rare not very often um you know it's because they don't have the succedaneous tooth is not coming in and they're trying to maintain what they have and, right right um but uh yeah it's i've done two or three two or three you do you have, do you have a comb beam in your office i do do you, I do do you take Marita. do you take a fair amount of them like on challenging teeth or like on a lot of molars do you tend to yes tend to do so uh any retreat um i take it on just mm -hmm. to see if there's missed canals or mm -hmm. what's going on uh if i'm going to do an apico on the, oh, on the sure. tooth i do those all the time uh, resorption cases. I don't know if, how many resorption cases you see in pediatric not offices. A, not a ton. Man, they are proliferating like crazy. Um, I did a external resorption repair on a 14-year-old today. Really? Um, just bomb. Just looked like decay almost, but it was just it was, the whole tooth was eaten up all the way around the pulp chamber. Wow. Kind of crazy. Um, traumas. I'll take them to see if there's any alveolar root fractures or, or any fractures. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then it's my get out of jail card. I. You know, sometimes I'm not seeing an eight-year-old. I'm seeing an 85-year-old. Right. And, um, you know, it's through a crown, and I can't find the pulp chamber or any canals, or I'm halfway down the route, and I still don't have a canal. Mm -hmm. And I'll just stop the procedure and take a comb beam and say, hey, where am I at? Where's where do yeah. I need to go? Get Is there even anything here right. for me to find? Right. Um, so it it, um, it keeps me out of trouble. So yeah. I'm a big fan. That's of cool. I think so, too. It's it's That's, like, my next step if... if um, or kind of the reason I like having an endodontist like yourself to send kids to because obviously I don't, there's no way I could ever financially justify getting a comb in, in my office, you know, and I don't do a lot of ortho stuff or anything like that. So mm -hmm. it's nice to have somebody that like, if I'm looking at something that looks weird, nice yeah. to be able to send that to. I was gonna ask, did, did you end up, sorry, did you end up seeing that uh, that one kid today 
the, the one kid we were talking about? Because I thought that'd be um, a good case I was going to talk about here. My office manager was talking with the mom yesterday, I think. I, I haven't seen him yet. Haven't but, seen him yet? Uh, okay. There's some insurance. Finance stuff. So they are, they are well, coming. and so that's why this is such a good case study to talk about because it highlights how some of these endotopics are tough in pediatric dentistry. So background of this case, then you tell me how – I think I know the answer to how you would have approached this different, but – you know, I've got a, a family, mom is dual insured. She has primary Delta, secondary Medicaid. And since I'm in network with both, it's great because mom doesn't have any out-of-pocket payments with me, which is great. I still get reimbursed well. She's got options because she has Delta, but um, obviously the income threshold is lower because they're on Medicaid. So her kiddo, really good kid. I think he's 15, um, number 19. You know, we had a bunch of cavities, hadn't been in the dentist in years. We got everything fixed up except 19 was kind of a bear cat because it had like really large decay on it. Um, like distal buckle cusp was broken off. Um, and the tooth was like mostly reversible, symptoms to cold, tested it, tested vital. Um, but seemed okay for the most part at the time. So I treatment planned it for a permanent stainless steel crown, just knowing it's way too big to put a composite or something in. But obviously mature tooth because the kid's 15. So, um, did the block, got in, um, from what I can even remember, because at the time it seemed like everything went really smooth, but I got a big round burr, cleaned up the margins. Um, the decay easily, if I, in retrospect, I kind of wish I would have done the coronal pulpotomy from the get-go if I would have done more like complete caries removal, but I didn't. I stayed a little bit short, um, left a little bit of decay right where the near the pulp was at because I knew if this kid ended up needing a root canal, this mom was going to have to like follow up in a way that was going to be harder for her financially. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I, you know, got my decay out. Then I prepped it for a stainless steel crown, got a really good fitting stainless steel crown. Kiddo goes on his way. And then a month later, mom calls, he's starting to have pain. I see him back in, um, you know, obviously at that point you can't really pulp test kind of mixed symptoms for the pulp, but just progressively got worse. So he ended up coming in last week and kind of just determined he's having like pretty severe, um, like, you can't even call it irreversible pulpitis because it's been treated, but like a symptomatic apical periodontitis. So, you know, he's just having symptoms. He needs a root canal. Yeah. So I ended up accessing, and this is where I say like I try to not be too shy of the pulp, but mm -hmm. um, first time I've had to do this, but I ended up accessing through the window, like the roof of my own stainless steel crown. I miraculously found the pulp chamber. I felt like even though it's probably not that hard, I was like, <laughs> man, my bearings are kind of off. Like I hope I don't perf this thing like dental school style, but got in and removed coronal pulp tissue um, got good bleeding, got, you know, hemostasis, bleach pellet, you know, kind of killed the bacteria. Then I filled it up with IR, um, or I actually just put a couple cotton pellets, filled it up with Fuji mm -hmm. triage. So, and then yeah. and sending him the kid to you. Yeah. Well, this is like where the story continues because now the mom, you know, she's upside down on all of her credit cards and has no money because now like every other endodontist in the whole world, endodontists just don't take Medicaid and it just mm -hmm. is what it is. And I a hundred percent get it. So now this mom's got you know, which her insurance coverage is still really good. Mm -hmm. She only needs to pay like a couple hundred bucks for the whole root canal. But like now we're kind of in the pickle where she's like, like finances are in the way, but the kid's having all this pain again. And I just feel so bad. And I'm like, damn, what could I have done differently? Yeah. And I, I think retrospectively removing more decay and trying the coronal pulpotomy with MTA from the get go mm -hmm. is what I would have, could have, wish I kind of should have done. But I don't know that yeah. one. I've just I've lost I, a little yeah. sleep over that you one. You and I both wish we had perfect hindsight all the time. Right, looking forward that crystal ball. It's just that's the way it goes. But you, you, I mean, 
the best thing you can do is be honest and you went back in and you know mm-hmm. gave more treatment so yeah I mean, you can't lose sleep about that right do try to have do. good good line of communication um, with the mom yeah for sure so, yeah. yeah I remember uh, yeah they were wanting to find some an endodontist that want that took Medicaid um, and Medicaid I've looked at their reimbursement uh, it's probably been a year mm-hmm. you know, like for like a molar root canal and it's like $280 or something like that that's laughable which I've uh, you know being a new practice owner I've you know a year not quite a year and a half yet but it's like okay straightforward root canal or I don't use 5,000 files mm-hmm. you know trying to get down a calcified case but straight straightforward normal root canal it's going to cost me between three and four hundred dollars by Just the time in. I think about staff and rent and practice loan and all that oh, stuff and, and in addition to the disposables right um, and so it's just like you, your heart if your heart's big you're like I, you want to help these people at the mm. same time you know when you're a million dollars in debt yeah. or whatever Dude, it is I love, you're like oh man I this love is a that bad business decision I love that you're thinking about it from that mm-hmm. standpoint because a lot of guys that aren't owners don't think about you know a lot of guys don't know what's the the joke is like McDonald's knows what they spend on a sesame seed you know yeah. like a lot of dentists yeah. have no idea what is even the cost just yeah. to set up your tray and to do for you it's nice because the handful of procedures you do you can really get it dialed in. You know exactly what you're mm-hmm. going to spend for a root canal. And I have a spreadsheet in the office that's like just to set up an op tray, get a kid numb, and like have everything ready to go. Nitrous nose and everything costs like 22 bucks or something. Yeah. You know, the yeah. whole kit. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, you start, it, it's nice to like think to yourself, is this, am I even, even making any money? Is this worth my time? And, you know, and yeah. to your point, there's a reason endodontists don't see Medicaid. So you mm-hmm. try to prep those parents and, this actually goes back to a bigger question that was a hot topic on a pedo page, like a pedo dentistry page. Um, I brought it up and I kind of got like pinched on this question by a lot of people. But, you know, sometimes parents will come to me because I do see Medicaid for like for kids at least mm-hmm. and uh, say, well, you know, a lot of parents are dual insured in our area because you and I practice the same area. You know, a lot of middle class working families, they work at Toyota plant and have Delta but you know they don't make enough where they, they qualify for Medicaid. So it's great because they have really good coverage for everything. But then a lot of parents will be like, well, do we even need to be paying for this work dental insurance like Delta if Medicaid, you know, if you accept Medicaid? And um, I finally have thought of a good response to that. But the answer is like, no, technically you don't need to have Delta because you, know, you can still see us and things are covered. But in cases where you need to go see an endodontist, you need some wisdom teeth taken out, you know, you need a specialist procedure, you could get pinched because like all of a sudden, you know, you can't yeah. find a spe- another specialist who's yeah. a network like I am. So yeah. I, I bring that up a lot. Yeah, no, too. it's the financial discussions with patients are the hardest sure. part of practice, I think. And I hate to talk about money, so I've got great staff to take care of that. You, you punch it off, right? Yeah. You know, I hope, yeah. hopefully you're doing the same thing, Casey. For but most part, yeah. Um, yeah. But like with, with that same case you're talking about, we eventually got them on the books because we told them we would take payments. Good. Basically. That's wonderful. And yeah. If we could do that, then they were willing to come in and do the make it work. Co-pay. And I don't yeah. know what the copay was going to be, but yeah. it wasn't Nothing terrible. Crazy. But, um, you know, it's, and I don't like to do that a lot because, first of all, I don't like to have those financial conversations, like I just said. Sure. But I'm not a banker. I'm not doing credit scores. I've got to, you know, if somebody, if a bunch of people start not paying, I've got to go through collection agencies and, you know, it's just opens a whole bag of worms. 100%. Yep. And for my patients, I'm not seeing them every six months for Mm -hmm. cleaning and checkup. I see them one time typically. Mm -hmm. So that's probably a little different take from my situation versus yours. Right. But, you know, in those hard situations, we will, you know, make situations. And 
I, uh, and sometimes we'll do pro bono stuff. We'll do discounts mm-hmm. and, and things like that. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's easier, like, when you have a good month and you're really busy, you're like, okay, mm-hmm. this person's hurting and let's just take care of this person, you know, and, right. and that's okay. So, I think in our first year, I calculated up uh, back in May, I had done $30,000 for the free work. Dude, good for year. you. So That's pretty like, awesome. I was like, I wonder how many we've done because we're, we're doing it here and there and here uh-huh. and there and you just, you don't keep track of the numbers. You just well, kind of lose you track of it. And I was like, track of it, you yeah. know, I feel like, you know, I didn't go to church as much because of COVID. <laughs> I know I certainly didn't put any money in the offering plate. But, you're building a little good karma, some giving, right? You know, let's just, I have done some giving. Yeah. And, you know, so that's, that's something as a practice owner that you can do whenever you want to For well, sure. That's which, a freedom. Which you... is one of the things I love the most about it. Like, Or if you have a root canal that goes sideways and needs to be extracted, and you can refund them without mm-hmm. tiptoeing to your boss and asking permission for stuff like that. For sure. Yeah. Man, that's great. Yeah, that's something you don't have the freedom to do if you uh, answer to somebody else, you know, as an associate mm-hmm. or something. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Man, I, uh, I, I'm interested, you know, the more because you're a young prax owner too you know it's you keep learning all these things that you didn't know initially and that you don't get mm-hmm. taught in the dental school or the army or residency and things but you know it's um i've had a lot of good conversations on the podcast with different pediatric dentists doing startups so i'm very familiar with the pedo world but you know it's it'd be it's interesting getting your take from an endo perspective i know endo has a reputation for being the low overhead one because you know like how you have what two or three employees right now um, I actually have four, four, just down from five. We, uh, we were just, it, it, despite COVID, mm-hmm. we just had a crazy, crazy year and just blew up. Well, that's a benefit you for know. you. COVID's been good for endodontists, right? Has, yeah. It has, yeah. So, um, but yeah, I think we're, I think four is, four keeps everybody working really hard, mm-hmm. including myself. Five keeps me working ridiculously hard mm-hmm. and my staff not as much. Gotcha. So it's like finding that happy medium walk in the line four and a half would be the perfect number but (laughs) so how are you at your office in Wentzville here are you four days a week five days a week four days four days Mm -hmm. Uh, what are you know I I, things I know a little about you know what does your typical day look like with um, you know getting referrals and things how many patients are you seeing what what comprises most of your day Um, so typically I schedule about an hour for each patient if it's a surgery or a retreatment, I may add 15 or 30 mm-hmm. minutes to it. Um, we try to hold one, at least one appointment open every day for an emergency. For you sure. somebody that's, you know, holding an ice pack on their face mm-hmm. and they want to be seen right now or they're right. swollen, uh, you need to see them right away. So we try to do that. It's not always possible because, you know, you know sometimes we're booked out three weeks and... and it's hard to squeeze those emergencies in. Right. But I work out of three chairs, um, and so that allows me to double book patients too. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if I have like a number eight on a 25-year-old and I have an emergency, emergency is going right next to that one. That mm-hmm. number eight should not take me more than 30 minutes. Right. To, you know, quick, and, yep. and patients that are have a hot tooth, they need to sit and be numb for 30 minutes anyway. Right. So it's like if I can numb two people up at the same time, that's that's cool. Yeah. That, that works for me. Nice. Um, and so I, you know, I see probably 10 to 12 patients a day. Mm-hmm. Um, number of root canals I do or complete, I probably complete six or seven on an average day. Any given day. Um, and start a few other retreatments or mm-hmm. cases we medicate and see a consult or two. But, gotcha. Um, but it's it's a busy day. Sure, sure. That's pretty cool, you know, for not, you know, and that's a similar trajectory to 
you know, being us, for those who I didn't update here, um, Ted and I practice in like the same geographic type area, but you know, the nice thing about our growing area and it's just high carries risk population. I feel like endless amounts of cavities to do. So we both have been like super busy the first year and a half out or whatever, which is pretty cool. But I'm trying to think, you know, as we kind of wrap up, like what, are there any other like peds cases that you see a lot of or stuff that you see like relevant to obviously the big bombed out six-year molars seem mm-hmm. to be most the endo stuff i get um i've had a couple weird like i had a kiddo i think i sent to you who you know like was a, a bad grinder a lot of attrition and ground through like a number 24 or 25 and then incidentally found it you know asymptomatic but like on a pantomograph like it looks like a little periapical lesion mm-hmm. um i don't think i even pulp test i think i just sent to you but ended up being just you know and that i feel like sometimes you get like weird idiopathic type you know yeah teachers um, decide to die on you yeah um dins and vaginitis dins evaginitis mm-hmm. you see those in younger kids you know um that's you know a non-carious or you know it's a bacterial exposure but you're sure. like, where's the decay in this tooth where's why is this tooth got a big lesion on it right and you look you can see the little folds of enamel on the mm-hmm. PA. see some of those um trauma i think the kids it's bombed out molars and it's trauma trauma you know? Yeah. Um, Are you doing any, um, like, do you, or did you train and do any sort of decoronation type procedures if for ankylosing? Um, well versed like, in it, never done one. Never done one. Um, yeah. I think it's, I think it's interesting, and I think, um, you know, when you have that kid that comes to you with a tooth that's out of their mouth for mm-hmm. twenty four hours, right? And probably you're not going to put it back in, but if it's two hours or three hours, you're probably going to stick that tooth back in, mm-hmm. um, and that tooth's going to resorb or ankylose and it's going to be the short tooth very soon. Right. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that's a good way to keep that, that bone there for, for future. As long as possible. Know, sometimes. Yeah. And you have to have that conversation with parents and patients. It's like, sometimes we're just trying to get you to your twenties. Sure. Right. And with this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah. Like an implant's inevitable. What, what can we do to buy yeah. time? How can yeah. we get bone here? How yeah. can we, you know, make you yeah. not look like a hockey player for, right, right. for, 10 years or whatever it is but, you know uh, i did two decoronations in residency and what's funny in in peds residency you take all these calls and you get all these crazy trauma cases because you're kind of the epicenter of where all the trauma in your state uh-huh. or whatever winds up and it's funny because um you know you get this impression that you're constantly going to be dealing with trauma all the time mm-hmm. and like i don't think i've been i mean i've had some trauma but i haven't had anything like outrageous like broken fracture splinting i haven't had to splint since being out of residency so Mm -hmm. it's kind of like when you're a little kid you're worried about quicksand and then you realize when you get older it's not that big of a you know it's like a silly analogy you're worried about as a kid yeah but it's really not so but anyways i did two of these decoronations and i didn't personally do them but kind of like treatment planned and got a consult and i had one done by uh an endo resident one done by a perio resident but kind of the same general theme like trauma like a bit of i think it was avulsions both of them or maybe like an in, mm-hmm. an intrusion or something but yeah. tooth ended up you know resort resorbing and had real short clinical crown and just having issues so mm-hmm. they both just like chopped off the coronal portion the enamel and kind of dug out like the socket i think the endo one they you know and that's that's kind of where my knowledge falls apart is does it make sense to go in and like try to clean out the you know the canal of the tooth and like you know, try to sterilize it or put like some sort of, you know, um, I don't know what you would put in it and then suture a membrane the over way it. way that I would do, I wouldn't, I would just, um, if there's, if it's treated already, get the gutta perch out, mm-hmm. you know, um, 
and calcium hydroxide. Just some calcium hydroxide. It's gonna go away, but. Would you put something, you know, cause I, I think, well, if they're chewing food, they're just gonna pack food in that tooth and get it infected or something. Would you try to get, you know, yeah, suture I mean, over I'm, it or do I'm going down, you're, going, you're at the bone level. You're right. way down in there. Um, they should clop over that, but I mean, oh, okay. I don't think a membrane is a bad idea either. If you can get one keep, in there. Keep it clean. Right. You know, Okay. You know, it's funny. It seems like, uh, like I said, I haven't had one of these cases, but the day's going to come where I'll have an idea case, ideal case, and the kid's just going to be like a wild animal in the chair, and it won't end up working out, yeah. you know. From my perspective, they're all wild animals <laughs> in, the, in the chair. So my heart is out to all you pediatric kids oh, right. that, that can do this. Because when I see those, see an eight-year-old on a schedule, my, my blood pressure goes up 20 points. A little I, bit. I, I promise you that. Okay. <laughs> so last kind of like trauma thought here, too. Um, and it, said I've got to kind of jog my memory because I haven't had a case like this in recent times but it seems like a frequent endo topic that gets brought up with these trauma cases you know no eights and nines is like when does it make sense to like consider for a root canal and you can pick any case whether it's like an intrusion an extrusion um, a lateral luxation and you you know splint it back in but let's say the tooth wasn't avulsed like if the tooth is avulsed it's a little bit more cut and dry because there's guidelines to follow you know mm-hmm. if it's under an hour wide open apex yep. you know and the tooth yeah. was kept clean in milk say you get it back in you splint it like maybe some antibiotics or something the tooth's probably going to be healthy and be okay but avulsions aside if it's an intrusion or uh, like an alveolar fracture seems to be what a lot of them are yeah. you know then i don't know my 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 personal experience seems to be more along the lines of let's like get the kid back in you know at one week and two Mm -hmm. week and four weeks and take a big series of radiographs and as soon as we start to see something like maybe we see a little internal resorption like because they never pulp test right then at that point immediately endodontist and root canal so from your perspective do you like to be more proactive and do the root canal from the Um, get-go or how do you approach those i'm probably more conservative honestly um my advice to your listeners and to you would be um the guidelines, um, I don't, I have the guidelines on my desktop. Mm-hmm. I do trauma, but I'm like, I don't know the exact step for everything. I haven't sure. long since it's gone out of my brain. But, <laughs> right. Um, so like AAE.org, they have free trauma guidelines. Mm-hmm. What's the injury? What are the follow-ups? Everything. It's just, it's, it's idiot proof. You can do it. And then there's um, the International Association of Dental Trauma has its own guidelines too. So mm-hmm. it's got, I think it's called Tra- Dental Trauma Guide. Yep. yep. So those are two resources free. Click on there. It will pictures. It shows you exactly what to do. The follow, all the follow up things as well. Okay. Um, I will lean towards being more aggressive on a tooth with a closed apex. Okay. The more substantial the injury, closed apex. Let's do the root canal. Gotcha. Let's not allow an infection to establish. Okay. You know, if it's an open apex, I'm a lot more conservative. Can it? Can that revascularize? Can it heal? Uh, can we get continued root formation and decrease the risk of fracture mm-hmm. in the future? That's what our hope is. Okay. Um, you know, and I, I actually have a few that I'm following up on the, on those timelines. I have a feeling we're going to be doing three root canals in two weeks. Just Probably, because, yeah. You know, yeah. And, and the guidelines tell you you're looking for two signs of necrosis. It's either, it could be pain, it could be, you know, radiolucency, uh, lack of response to a cold test. So you're, you're not basing it off of any one you know, test or, or thing that you're like clinical symptom that you're right. looking at. So, um, yeah, more conservative with open apex, more aggressive as the tooth is more mature. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, and I, I think, um, it seems like in residency when this was more of a common issue, 
a frequent finding would be like trauma and it gets complicated by the fact that maybe the parent drove in a long ways they're not local they don't have good follow-up they're not reliable and you kind of try to explain to them like you know we can give this kiddo the benefit of the doubt and see if the tooth stays healthy but like if we start seeing you know signs of abscess or it starts to you know become necrotic or it seemed like resorption was the one i see a lot of uh-huh. like internal resorption like we need to do the root canal right away but then like the parent you know it just goes over the head it's not bothering the kid they don't follow up they fail the follow-up appointment and then you know just gone two's gone Resorbing they come the back in like a year later and there's no root left or it's yeah. enclosed or whatever yeah and uh, I, I, I definitely in last year had a case like that where i was being more conservative and and in a three-week period, resorption set in to an unbelievable degree. Like, yeah. Unbelievable. Crazy. So that's a hindsight I wish I had. You Just know, done the root count. Which ones do I need to be more aggressive yeah, on? Yeah, right. Uh, that's the science and art of it all. But, For sure. Um, yeah, that, it's trauma is tough. It is, um, yeah. So... Hmm. Well, I'm sure between, you know, the next 20 years, you and I are here practicing together. We'll have a handful We'll figure of them. it out. We'll get it, we'll get it figured out. Yeah, <laughs> teamwork makes the dream work. Well, hey, thanks for, uh, I don't know if you had anything else to add, but, you know, for hopefully everybody could hear us. So between the cicadas and the leaf blowers and the jamming music, like, um, I'm going to have to get my studio set up eventually so we have a, a quieter place to do these. But it was a good discussion. I, it's, I don't get to talk about doing endo stuff very often, so it's kind of nice to, like, dive back into these sometimes. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, Hopefully this was helpful. Yeah, we'll do it again sometime. So thanks for hopping on.